appreciate you, George. I love you, Mike. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you? Hey, uh, this podcast is sponsored. If you didn't know, this is the Phil Craft Survival Podcast. You might have meant to click on the Joe Rogan Podcast, but uh, just hang with us a little bit while we get through these ads. Yeah. How does how does Joe Rogan get away with doing eight minutes of ads? I don't know. I just fast forward. I fast forward it to ten minutes, and then I'm yeah. good. Man, don't fast forward these ads though. Yeah, <laughs> is this a good way to kick off ads? We got coupon codes and everything. Yeah, coupon code. We save you money. Uh, the first uh, <laughs> sponsor. Oh man, I love it. Uh, Uncana. This podcast is sponsored by Uncana. Um, if you have been watching us recently, then you'll know that uh, we've been using CBD oil. You know why? Because we don't fucking care what people think. Like everybody's scared of CBD, which is associated with cannabis because it comes from cannabis, but it doesn't have THC. It doesn't no, get you high. I don't get it. Relax. Look, they're veteran LEO and federal uh, communities that are uh, getting uh, more into CBD because they're looking for alternatives besides drugs. Nobody wants drugs. Nobody wants your stupid pharmaceuticals. I don't want your stupid pills anymore. No more, uh, except for those ones that, never mind. Veteran owned and operated. I was going to go down a dark, dirty path. Veteran-owned and operated, the Uncanny team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OptNatural, O-P-T Natural. Uncanny is vertically integrated, which just means they're freaking better than everybody else. They care because the dude who runs the company is a ranger, and rangers lead the way. Did you say small batch? Did you mention that? Uh, Nope. There's small batch. You want to talk about that? Yeah, so small batch, you know, it's 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 better quality control. You're not, you know, it's not diluted. It's, It's just there you're making those quality batches each time and you know. yeah it's like craft beer for the cbd exactly world. the bottom line is uh there's a whole bunch of people on the in the market space trying to take advantage of it and selling shit and uncanna is not doing that check out uncanna u-n-c-a-double-n-a.com and use phil craft for 10 percent off your order also this podcast is sponsored by triarch t-r-i-a-r-c systems.com TriarchSystems.com is our number one recommended choice for everything pistol-wise because they make a pistol platform and Glock that we use, Glock 43, Glock 17, Charlie, even their Triarch 1911. And the reality is there's a lot of companies that build a lot of sexy shit, but it doesn't do the job. And Triarch every single time does a job. In fact, I have probably about 10,000 rounds to my Glock 17, Charlie, and it's still running strong. And they also have Triarch Rifles. Mm-hmm. And you can also get custom or build or build yourself the um, Triarch 1911s. Ooh. Yeah. Are you into 1911s? I have one at home. It's not a Triarch, though. Uh, so we Triarch, if you're in. listening, uh, shoot one my way. That's for sale for 100 and then we'll use the coupon code PhilCraft to save on the next purchase of your Triarch. Yes, we will. All right. I like that. All right. So also, this podcast is sponsored by TrueBrain, T-R-U-Brain.com. TrueBrain.com makes food for your brain. They actually have uh, a couple products including nootropics that me and Raul are testing out. Also, they do the ketone ester, which I'm a big fan of. If you're into the keto diet or if you're just not into keto or dieting or anything at all, but you want to get the benefit, the cognitive benefit and the acceleration of brain fuel, check out their ketone ester. Definitely use Philcraft 15, Philcraft 15 to save 15% off. Also, um, you, you want to talk about a couple courses that we got going on. If you guys are in the area, we got Darren, uh, former pre- professional fighter, actually is in the professional circuit. He's actually going to do a fight soon. Uh, he will be. He's also a UFC trainer um, and a practitioner of jujitsu and other MMA martial arts. He will be in the house with Raul April thirteenth doing a seminar. If it's, you're in the tribe, uh, you have a tribe membership for monthly or annual. You can get it for free, 
or it's $50. You can sign up at philcraftsurvival.com. On the 14th, also, Raul will be teaching carbine gunfighter in the house. And uh, disregard, I just made that up. Did I make that up? It's, uh, carb- it's a gunfighter pistol. I always say carbine because I always think the second day needs to be carbine. Yeah. I'll shoot carbine by myself that day. <laughs> so that that is a gunfighter pistol course with uh, Raul Martinez. Um, I always fucking fuck that up. Is that how you say it in Spanish? Yeah. I say it. You say it in Spanish. Martinez. Don't I guess. Do I don't know. Don't ever do Raul? that. Raul? Raul? That, don't ever do you that. You gotta again. roll your R's? Dude, that's just weird, man. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I'm trying. <laughs> I'll be there too on the range. So. All right. What else we got going on? We have uh, San Diego this weekend, but it's all booked up, which is awesome. Yeah. It's all sold out. So if you guys are interested, you can't sign up. So don't worry about that. <laughs> what else do we have? April. Hmm. Easter weekend, we got oh, uh, yeah. Gunfighter Pistol and Carbine. Um, if you guys are interested, sign up. I'll be in Miami. Or actually, I'll be in a, a town called Homestead, Florida, which is south of Miami for Gunfighter, Carbine, and Pistol Easter weekend. And you're doing a uh, Friday. You're doing a survival Easter seminar. Weekend. A survival seminar, 6 to 7.30, more than likely in uh, south Miami, probably on the way from the airport to my hotel. I'm still looking on a venue. The church that we had fell out, um, but we are looking for another uh, place to host for about 50 people that we can bring in. If you guys are interested uh, at any additional courses, check out philcraftsurvival.com. All right, guys, on the podcast today, we got James Kearns. James Kearns is the owner of Inside Enduro. We actually met him at the uh, Rough Rider 100. Uh, if you're interested in coming out to next year's Rough Rider 100, we'll be out there, but it's part of the AMRA Amara series for enduro racing. It was a really cool race. If you're in, interested in enduro racing, it's pretty hardcore, man. They even have the hard enduro circuit. Um, that's actually the name. Um, where guys are running 250 to 300s, running over uh, hundreds of miles, potentially six to eight hours, some of these races. And it's a true testament to uh, physical capability, technical capabilities, and obviously your endurance. Um, James is an expert. He's actually a pro rider. He's riding in the pro circuit right now. Uh, shared a lot of good knowledge on how he got into the sport, how he got into the game, and then some of the tactics that he's used. Uh, but really interesting conversation with James Kearns from Inside Enduro. My man, he's a beast, too. Oh, he's a beast. Right. His hands are like Dude, every time I hold his hand, it's huge. like, man, like, I thought you had big hands. You. It's crazy. Your hands are like tiny compared to his. I know. I got it's mid- weird. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. Yeah, so I uh, hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. You guys can check him out on Instagram at Inside underscore Enduro. All right, guys, let's kick it off. James, what's going on, man? Not much. Made the nice drive up here to Prescott, Arizona. Uh, so you're in the valley, right? You're down. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a valley boy, apparently. Scottsdale, right? Scottsdale? Scottsdale. So uh, James just came up, and I told him to to bring the Sprinter van. I'll have that on IGTV. But that, that Sprinter van you got, man, I'm jealous. That thing is just amazing. I dig it. I dig it. What year? What year is that one? It's a 2016, and I had a 2014 or 15 two wheel drive, the 140 or the 144 length, mm-hmm. and I basically did a Home Depot yeah. job on it. Yeah, yeah. With just the materials, subfloor plywood, just the materials I could find at Home Depot. That's awesome. That was terrible. That's what I, I got the 2012 Freightliner, which is the same thing, but it's got. Um, we're we're go- we are going to go down that road, and it's the thirty five hundred. But 
I'm going to hold out and get the four-wheel drive because that one's four-wheel drive, right? Yeah. And the first one I did, since I did such an atrocious job on it, it made me stay true and plan <laughs> out the 2016 one. Yeah. And put a lot of thought and about 300 hours myself Ooh. into it. Oh, so you did that build yourself? 100%. Wow. Okay, so I'm going to have that definitely on IGTV for people to see because I'm a big Sprinter van person, but I I always wanted to build my Sprinter van out and have it have the modularity because I wanted to be able to carry a bike one weekend, you know, load out Philcraft stuff for another weekend, and then maybe make it a little nice to do camping or something. I didn't want the, you know, there are $150,000 builds people are doing in these Sprinter vans that are just immaculate like a house. I guess that's if you're if that's your style, it just seems like excessive. I yeah, know. I wasn't looking for something like that. Mine's pretty posh in my opinion, but I did all the floor rubberized. I wanted to be able to use it for any purpose. Yeah, and essentially be able to hose it or wipe it out. And it came out came out pretty well. And the story: it was a very cold winter in Montana. Mm-hmm. I had nothing to do, and had an old shop. And we had taken down a bunch of cedar fence, so I took the chainsaw out. Oh my gosh! It's all—it's all cedar. No, what I did with the cedar is I cut all the cedar with my chainsaw because there was a iron belly stove, and it was so cold. Yeah. And I literally locked myself in this maintenance building for sixteen to eighteen hours a day for the better part of five weeks. Whoa. And it, it it was and just got it done. I was insanely no stop. Yeah, yeah, no stop. But before I started, I planned it out like a house, essentially. Yeah, knowing all of the electrical, where I wanted things to run, things that I potentially wanted to do later. Yeah, and how to plan any of the trim or any of the key items that I wanted. I made sure that I had ordered prior. Yeah, so that. Basically, once I drop the hammer, yep, it's going to be done right. I was going nonstop. That's awesome, man. I, I want that level of commitment when I do mine. Which Probably, was, yeah. Oh, yeah, which was really good. But to be honest, this is really embarrassing. But I had a terrifying experience this weekend. What happened? Truly terrifying. <laughs> Are you ready for this? Yeah. I'm a little ashamed, but <laughs> what the hell? It's entertaining. So with the build, I wanted it to be soundproof it's a panel van so if you're going to be traveling it a lot in it a lot and you want to listen to the stereo talk on the phone you want it to be quiet yeah you also want to be you want it to be insulated if you're camping in it and it takes very little heat so on the interior it was done 100 percent in dynamat basically Mm. that tin foil tar yeah yeah for sound systems yeah boom 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 yeah Don't play too much of that, but I did that. Everything else was either R13 or R55, one-inch closed cell foam, Reflectix bubble wrap. Mm -hmm. Yep. Then everything was three-eighths plywood, and then everything that had upholstery was a quarter-inch upholstery foam, and then the upholstery. Mm -hmm. So we're talking, this thing is built soundproof. Yeah. So we're in a race in a place called Murphy, Idaho. And I was running a little behind and I needed to get to the starting line. It was a bomb start. So they dropped the flag, 300 nut balls, pinned across. Well, I'm not always pinned. I'm a little more, 
have some preservation going on, but yeah. you know, across the sagebrush and I need to get there. So everyone had pretty much had left the pits uh-huh. and I was frantically trying to get the last things ready to get going. And, and the, the weather was pretty windy and unsettled and I didn't have the doors all the way open in a locked position. And at the last second, I decided there was one thing I needed to get out of the back. Mm-hmm. And so I jump in, I've got a helmet on, boots on, there's stuff kind of all over the floor. So I'm trying to navigate that and I'm grabbing this thing. Well, the wind comes up and closes the doors like kaboom. Yeah. So it goes from light to completely dark <laughs> immediately. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I have a race start in five minutes. Yeah. And I'm potentially locked in the back <laughs> of a fucking van. So it's semi terrifying. And there's a release. I was like, man, there's got to be a release. Yeah. And I thought I'd tried it before. And I don't know if the way they closed together that it wedged something. Yeah. But I was hitting it. And it wasn't. And it wasn't opening. You're stuck in the back in full kit, like hit it up. Yeah. Yeah. Getting hot quick. Like the temperature (laughs) is rising what Uh seems to be anywhere from 10 to 15 degrees Uh every three seconds. And I'm thinking. All right, I'm ready to go Samsonite Granilla, mm-hmm. Gorilla, and bust myself out of this. Yeah. I mean, I was ready to go full Viking. Committing. And uh, and as uncool as it seems, and I can yell loud, man, I was screaming, <laughs> like, help, let me out. And I mean, dude, it didn't sound like that. It yeah. sounded like the voice of Thor. <laughs> I mean, I was letting it go. And then I was thinking, this thing is so well insulated that nobody hears you nobody hears me screaming right (laughs) and i'm pounding on it and pounding on it and and i gave it the shoulder a couple times but i was gonna give it the full yeah like you know the full business hinges yeah well and you've seen those the hinges on a sprinter van oh yeah they're full steel oh yeah beefy beefy yeah and uh man and i don't know how long i was actually in there maybe it was only a couple minutes yeah and i was howling mad, just screaming. And then finally, click, it opens up. And this old guy has got to be in his 70s. He peers his head in around the corner because he didn't know what to expect. Yeah. People are so weird these days. Shit goes on and people don't want to say a thing. Oh, they just want to walk by, ignore and, it. And, he's, and he was like, well, I, I, heard the, I heard the yelling, but I didn't know exactly what was going on in there. Yeah. So I not I was somewhat apprehensive to open the door. Yeah. I'm like, I'm glad you did, man. <laughs> Holy shit. So I just, I jumped on the bike and. That's boom, awesome. Did headed, you make the start? Headed to, I did. I did make the start, but man, that was pretty weird. Actually, so, I, I haven't, I haven't tried it out again. I want to, I'm going to close. Yeah. Get myself closed in there again. Yeah. And make sure that works. You got to. Yeah. That's freaky. Well, it's the, we just replaced the hinges on my 2012 and they're, there's a whole bunch of I don't know how yours works, but like you have to unlock from the center console. We have like a unlock thing, but it works half the time. It's just intermittent between, I guess, a hundred and you know the length of the bed. It sometimes opens the back door, but sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. You got to go around. Yeah, it's uh, this one's the same way. So you have a, you know you have a pretty I would say I would use the word comprehensive uh, career. Like you've done, you know, me and James met at uh, Rough Rider 100, and he has a podcast called Inside Enduro, and he does a whole bunch of stuff, which we'll talk about later. But 
I mean, you have a really unique journey through life. I mean, you're a professional rugby player. Uh, you're a big-time hunter. You've been in this industry of packing and uh, kit and equipment for hunting. Um, let's start from the beginning, man. I, there's a lot of stuff to cover, but um, I want people to understand kind of where you're coming from. Like, you started off, and were you a professional rugby player prior to the hunting stuff, or, or how did that work? Wow, I mean... We're, let's start from the beginning. How far do you want to go back? I, I say we go back to the beginning. Let's go back to... Uh, the 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 rugby days. I'm assuming those were the the, the well, kickstart days. I don't know. You name you name the time. I guess it it kind of starts before that. Mm-hmm. You know, it started in Montana. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about those days. All right. Yeah. So you're a kid raised in Montana. Mm-hmm. Kind of came from a broken family. Yeah. Same. Yeah. As a lot of people. Oh yeah. A lot of anger. Yeah. A lot of trying to figure out who you are, and uh, fortunately, wrestling was a big thing in Montana and which is always interesting when you put two five-year-olds on a mat in a circle with three, 400, 500 people screaming bloody murder. It's like something like a scene from Spartacus. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. Because you have one kid. He's looking at the other kid. You're five, man. Like, I guess we're about to get this on. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, that's how we think about it now, but I don't know what the hell you're thinking then. Yeah. And it was funny because I've, I've watched it since and you see the young kids and hell, man, the kid who wins may cry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the kid, yeah. They, may both, they both may cry. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows you, what's going to happen you, do, you have no idea what's going to happen emotionally. Yeah. And to me, it's actually something that's really missed in this country with the participation awards and, mm-hmm. and all this shit. And, you know, it started with that, basically having to – you know, fight to win and as wrestling and a lot of other sports that really matter, the second you give up in your mind, you're done. Mm-hmm. You're just done. You're eaten mm-hmm. and you're vanquished and that's it. And so I wrestled all through all through junior high, high school, did some tournaments unattached in college and and uh actually was looking at going in the military or play college football, had mm-hmm. some offers on the table. And, uh, and I went as far as I went to the federal building in Billings, Montana. And I took at the time, if I remember correctly, it was a delayed enlistment. Yeah. Delayed entry program. Something like thing. that. Yeah. Yeah. And it was basically the way it was explained to me that if you did well enough on this test, mm-hmm. this placement test, you could pick your job yeah. that you wanted in the military. Mm-hmm. And so I looked at that and they had engineering and all this kind of stuff. And I, I scored a 99 percentile. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, yeah, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. Yeah. And then somebody showed, showed me the seal team tape. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that looks cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there was a swimming pool in it. Yeah. And I think it had something to do with someone being drugged by their feet backwards mm-hmm. to fill up their sinuses, to make them feel like they're drowning. Yeah. And at the time, and this is my cop out. So I, I'd gotten that far of going down the path. And I watched that video and I thought that was cool. Yeah. And I'd always had big thick glasses as a kid. Mm-hmm. And I had a diopter of negative five. Yeah. And I don't know if you know what that means. Uh-oh, what is that? But without glasses, even as a kid, like, I mean, you couldn't drive. Yeah. If I was sitting across from you right now, we're what, three, four feet away? Yeah. 
I could tell that it's you just by your shape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're you couldn't see and distinguish. No, features. no, you're, you're blurry as blurry as hell. And it was always a problem, even when I got contacts. Water skiing was a problem. Yeah, playing football is a problem. Going a water slide, you get a shot of water in the eye. Boom, oh, yeah. the contacts out. You're blind. You're playing football, even wrestling. You know the coach has always had an extra contact to shove one in. Yeah. Because when you lose one, yep. it throws off your whole program. Yeah. And I saw that water stuff and I'm like, man. And then I go, well, what's the options? Yeah. And they showed me the, uh, what do you guys call them? The birth control glasses. Yeah, BC. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, those are brutal. And dude, I, I mean, I got, I, and you got to realize, it, it, and I don't know, people maybe don't realize, but here, here's, here's a scene. Yeah. That just sticks with you. So I'm fifth grade walking home from school. And this is an interesting thing. People out there, kids used to walk to and from school. Mm -hmm. And it was, you would release an army after school. Mm -hmm. All the different alleyways because everyone had a different way to go. Yeah. To go home, right? And it's almost like little tribes. So you had your friends. There were certain alleys you avoided maybe mm -hmm. if there were some older kids. Yeah. And everyone, I mean, the, the streets were alive with children. Which is completely different today. Yeah, you never see him on the streets. No, you never see him at all. That would be awkward if you saw one. You'd be like, what's wrong with that kid? Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, here we are and we all fan out and everyone's going home. Well, here I've got these Coke bottle glasses. And to make it worse, I'm carrying a saxophone, <laughs> which is really uncool. <laughs> and uh, it's a sunny day. I can remember it. This is, yeah, for me, man, this is like 40 years ago. And, uh, Going down an alley with some friends, snow on the ground, so there's hard packed snow, mm -hmm. sunny, brilliant, eastern Montana day, mm -hmm. and there's this kid, and uh, his name was Chuck Axtell. Always a Chuck. Yeah. It's always a Chuck. And how I remember that name, could never forget it, right? And he started giving me some shit, and he was yeah. kind of one of these, probably from more of a broken home than I was. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, he starts flipping me shit, and I remember... And I wasn't one for taking shit yeah. ever. And I put the saxophone down. I hand my glasses over to somebody else. And we walk up. He throws he throws a punch and uh, just kind of deflects. And he's just this blurry thing. <laughs> and I connected. And that was it, man. Yeah. Like, like over blood in the snow. Kid was done. Uh -huh. Kid never ever messed with me again. And I turn around to give me my glasses back. I put on the glasses. The world comes back into vision. I grab my saxophone and I walk home. Uh -huh. So think about that. I mean, and, and to get rid of those glasses yeah. was huge for me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're a kid growing up in rented trailers and yeah. gravel parking lots, it wasn't taken for granted, especially at that time that, you know, you're going to get contacts. Mm -hmm. But I got them. And the idea of going back to glasses again. Yeah. That's scary. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I thought, yeah, it would be a whole new yeah. start over. There's no PRK and LASIK back then. It was just. No. Yeah. Yeah. There, there was no LASIK. And I had LASIK done in Australia by a Russian ophthalmologist named mm -hmm. Khan Mosigov. Because that's where they pioneered. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the surgery. And, yeah. It was, and when I had it in Australia, it wasn't available in the U.S. yet. Wow. And I went to almost 20-20 vision. Wow. And you don't realize how much 
paraphernalia shit you have. You have your contacts, your backup contacts, you have your glasses, your backup glasses, yeah. et cetera. And I literally took everything that I had and threw that box of shit away. Yeah. It was it, a pain, it's a pain in the ass growing up as a kid doing that because yeah. it just limits you know, a lot of the things that you want to do. Exactly. Yeah. So, weak or not, that's just kind of the way it's kind of the way it went down. But ended up playing college for Montana State. Mm-hmm. Got into rugby once that was finishing up. I was powerlifting as as well. Ninety mm-hmm. four, um, I won the NCAA national championship. Nice, two hundred and forty two pound class. Yeah. And then, so you weigh two forty back then. How much you weigh right now? Um, I try to keep it two twenty five. Okay, and it's yeah. everything I can do. I lift no weights. Yep, I do all plyometrics, uh, pushing dex- and pulling your old body weight, dexterity, and, yeah. speed, a lot of balance. Um, because racing the dirt bikes, it's great being strong, but it can work against you. It's diminishing return. Yeah, by yeah. being heavy. So if you're hitting whoops which yep. I try not to do races like that. Imagine, we'll put it this way. I mean, how many 230-pound bull riders do you see? Yeah, yeah, it's true. You just don't see it. No. But a mosquito can sit on a horse's ass while it bucks across the pasture. Yeah. Doesn't even miss a lick. Yep. And uh, so the weight, I, I try really hard to keep my weight down. I've been up to 280 Yeah. powerlifting. And wow. when you get that big muscle belly, yeah, it's a stabilizer for your spine. Yeah. So I was hitting squats, eight, you know, close to eight hundred. Yeah. Uh, free squats, uh, bench. I was never a super bencher. Maybe, you know, getting close, you know, around that five hundred mark. Yeah. But you know, in that world, you had big guys hitting sixes. You yeah. Know, hitting six hundred pounds on a bench. So I literally have not really pressed metal for six, seven, eight years. How did you? How do you get into rugby? As is that a was that a big thing when you were no you know, not at all not at it? all. There was a club team in Bozeman called the uh, Cutthroats at the time, and uh, to me it was a perfect mix of the cardio and relentlessness of wrestling mm-hmm. with some of the skills in football. And the deal with football, basically, if you're a lineman, you're a lineman. If you ever touch that football, you'd get scolded for it. Yeah. Like you see that football, you lay on it. Yep. You're not allowed to pick it up. Yeah. You know, you're an idiot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> do That's your awesome. Do your job. And in rugby, man, you had to be a linebacker. You had to be a running back. You mm-hmm. had to be a receiver. Uh, blocking's illegal, and and you ran for 80 minutes. And in professional rugby, union rugby, in an 80 minute match. You're only allowed six replacements mm-hmm. of 15 guys. Wow. So you have 15 guys on the field. If somebody comes off, they can't come back on again. So if you want to switch out for impact impact players, you have to be careful. Mm-hmm. If you bring three impact players in and go, all right, well, we got three more left. It's not unheard of to have three guys go down. Mm-hmm. You have some weird set of events and you lose three guys. Well, then you replace them. If you yeah. lose four guys you're going to play short. Yeah. And so the idea with that was, is the best rugby in the world is in the South Pacific, Mm -hmm. Uh, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand is noted as the best rugby in the world. And so I went out and basically tried out for a premiership team, Mm -hmm. uh, Eastwood and Sydney made the team played 
you know, close to four years down there. Wow. And I uh, met some great friends. Uh, we ran, we won the grand final in uh, 99. Mm-hmm. And at the time I was getting close to 30 and I was still somewhat structurally sound. Yeah. My body was in pretty decent shape. Yeah. And uh, moved back to the U.S. Um, started a company. And when I was college, I, I got a degree in sports medicine. So I'd been working in the medical field on the side and uh, started that company and continued on. Yeah. How'd you, how, how, what's the time? Cause I'm noticing the trend. The trend is like testing your body and endurance. I mean, like the, the, the things that you're doing are really assessing not just, you know, instantaneous strength, but it's like you have to be in it for the long haul. These are things that like, I mean, like you said, 80 minutes of running. I mean, these things are the limits of even extreme athletes as far as uh, their capabilities. And you keep testing yourself. And then you, we talked about hunting and, you know, some of the things that you're telling me about your experiences, uh, which is, you know, big game hunting in the mountains. A lot of people, you know, I grew up in North Carolina and whitetail hunting is sitting in a deer stand drinking beer and shooting an animal. But out in Montana specifically, Colorado, the Rockies, it's a, it's a completely like next level. How did you get into hunting? And then uh, what was the connection there for wanting to do some of the things that you did that were pretty extreme in hunting? Well, part of the thing, I think a trend that I've hit is not – having to survive things. So if you play club rugby, for example, the big thing is, Hey, we played, they don't really care if they won or lost, but they survived. And so let's drink beer till we pass out. For me, that wasn't acceptable. I like to have, I would say a synonym would be having a gas pedal. When other people are going at a level that they're just surviving, mm-hmm. I have, if I want to turn it up 30%, I have it. Mm-hmm. And I could turn it up to 30%. Yeah. You have control. You have control. Yeah. And when you have that control, you can dictate what goes on. Mm-hmm. You're not in a survival mode, just slogging to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the hunting, yes, extreme hunting. I still have not been in a tree stand mm-hmm. in my entire life of hunting. And and there's been a lot of hunting, man. Yeah. And uh, I'm an Alaskan guide as well. Mm-hmm. And I've taken enough people that I couldn't help but notice is when you're hunting through these extreme places. Yes, they're extreme, but they're also incredibly beautiful. And you'll have someone hiking with you, and they're just looking at their feet. Yeah. And they're just wishing it was over. They're just suffering. They're yeah. completely suffering. Yeah. And to me, I wanted to be at a state where I could do that. And I'm looking around, Mm -hmm. I'm looking around. Yeah. I'm working my ass off too, but I'm looking around. I'm enjoying what's around me. Mm -hmm. I'm enjoying the experience. And yeah, yeah, it's still, there's a lot of death marches. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. There's been a lot of 24 hour plus humps nonstop, but that was the thing that, that pushed me, that pushed me. It didn't matter what you were doing. Let's just, let's, let's take the survival thing out of it and let's mm-hmm. let's get past the survival let's let's embrace it mm-hmm. let's embrace it let's crush it let's move on mm-hmm. and that's where the extreme hunting came from and my first hunting experience my 
my uncle was a Vietnam vet. And again, I think I'm five or six years old. He has like a 1970s Datsun B210. Mm-hmm. So now it's funny. You think of hunting in the U.S. and you see giant four-wheel drives and giant trailers and mm-hmm. lift kits. And, man, you need all this shit to kill something. Yep. And we're in eastern Montana in a Datsun B210. That's awesome. I mean, that's kind of like a – yeah, that was like a Prius with a – you know, kind of I mean, the equivalent of a Prius. <laughs> yeah. You know, with, with hubcaps the, on it. Yeah. yeah, horrible. And we go out, and he shoots this mule deer – mule deer doe and he field dresses it and i started to get a little sick i'm mm-hmm. six and uh we put it on a rat on the roof which a mule deer in montana a big one is they can get you know 160 180 pounds i mean this yeah. is a big animal yeah put him up on there and and he's blood's coming down the windshield mm-hmm. down all the windows awesome. and and Man, strapped on the roof and you head home. Yeah. And I remember, I don't know, I think it was six, seven years ago, there was a picture, I think it was in Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, that this, again, I guess the social machine was already going, that there was some type of import car like that, Mm -hmm. you know, a small car, and it had a small six by, I mean, it's big, but rack wasn't that big, but like a six by six bull, or Mm -hmm. maybe a raghorn bull, Mm -hmm. is basically taking up almost the entire car yeah so it's strapped on and everyone was saying or not everyone but you know the discourse was you know how how disrespectful how disrespectful you know having that animal covering your entire car and this is you know it's like a thousand dollar car yeah as opposed to what yeah opposed to what like like if you put it in your fucking sixty thousand dollar truck that's gonna make it better then well well, that's better you know and obviously coming from the background from a kid that that i had seen it's like fuck you people yeah you know i mean here's someone they can afford a thousand dollar car and they went out and they hiked and they shot this bull yeah and they got that son of a bitch up on that car which i'm sure was no joke yeah you know and got it out of there you know and and somehow that that defines them as a, as a person. Yeah, and it's substance too because, you know, when you're growing up hunting, you're more than likely hunting for food to fill the fridge. And a lot yeah. of people nowadays are just hunting for the gram. You know, they're doing it for social media. They're doing it because maybe they want to be known as that guy who's hunting, but it's not necessarily – I mean, I know a, a lot of guys actually that um, they do it just because they want to be known as that. So it's kind of like this image thing, but it's – they forget like the the staple foundation of American hunters are people who do it because they want to get the meat to feed their families, and it's a partition of that. And and on top of being a family tradition as well, and so it's like you you have to do what you got to do. I mean, it's not it's it's not for the gram. It's it's a it's a complex deal for me. Uh, I can show you a roll of pictures that would blow your mind. Mm-hmm. Not one of them ever been on social media Mm -hmm. as far as i know there is not a picture one and i'm not saying i'm against that yeah i just don't know what it is it's something and that's with a lot of these efforts that's what's interesting even doing these podcasts that's where it's been a little bit different most of the things i've done i've done it for my own personal 
satisfaction. Mm -hmm. And I can't exactly explain that, but you know, if you go back to the hunting thing, it started out with going with my uncle. And then as a kid in Montana, you could do the hunter safety. And I actually heard you guys talking about it on a previous podcast. Mm -hmm. It was, it was a full week deal. Yeah. And it, for a kid, it was like long. Cause it was five o'clock at night, five to nine, mm-hmm. like four hours a night, which yep. as a kid, you know, that's pretty long. Yeah. Especially when Dukes of Hazard was on Friday night. Oh yeah. You You're know? missing <laughs> not many two ways to record that either. No, there was no, there was no recording <laughs> device. And, uh, you know, so you go through that and at the time, I had, a, I had a couple stepdads growing up and I'd go out with them. And in Eastern Montana, there was copious amounts of wildlife. Yeah. I mean, huge. And you could shoot a buck, usually two does, antelope buck, another two does. So you're looking at six tags per person. Wow. And uh, so we'd go out and their idea of hunting basically was buy a case or two of beer. Mm-hmm. And literally drive around. <laughs> spotting from the road. Yeah, yeah. spotting. And, and there, you know, there was no outfitting then. So here, this is a different time. Mm-hmm. And so you have no outfitters. So pretty much all the private landowners, if you asked, a lot of times you didn't even have to ask. Yeah. Uh, you just go out and hunt and drive the two track roads. Yep. Basically like a four-wheel drive safari. Mm-hmm. And I remember asking Hey, can you can you drop me off here and, and I'll walk up this coulee? Because mm-hmm. I just wanted to walk. Yeah, yeah. And as you grow up, like I was going with them because I had no other choice. Mm-hmm. And I just learned to despise it. Yeah. And just despise that kind of hunting. Yeah. yeah. And and man, they would race to cut off antelope herds. And mm-hmm. and my job was to hold all the shit that was on the dashboard because yeah. shit's literally flying full airborne. I yeah. mean, you're catching air. Yeah, uh, we actually they had a new truck and they bent the frame. Wow! From jumping it, mm-hmm. trying to chase antelope. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and you know, so I would I'd hold on to that stuff. So, fortunately, at the time in Montana, I got my driver's license when I was fourteen, and uh, I I was working. I started working at the age of twelve, and I can go back on my social security form, mm-hmm. and I was paying FICA and that kind of shit from the age of twelve. Wow. And so I'd saved up and I bought a 68 Mustang out of a salvage yard in Huntley, Montana. That's awesome. And it was primered brown, not even primered gray. Yeah, yeah. You couldn't even be that cool. It was primered like... (laughs) Rust brown. Yeah, like rust brown. And it had hubcaps on the front and it had Krager uh, rims on the back and it had four different brands of tires on it. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, so I went out and there was a kid that I wrestled with in Billings and they were the Lee family. His name was Chad Lee. And I went out to their, their place and said, so I'm 14. I have my driver's license. Mm -hmm. I'd gotten a rifle from somebody, Mm -hmm. just a piece of shit, whatever. And went out there and I remember it was muddy and you had to be really careful with that Mustang Mm -hmm. and parked it on the County road, hiked in by my, you know, obviously by myself, shoot a deer and, and, uh, I didn't have, I was trying to field dress it and obviously I wasn't exactly, I didn't have a saw or anything yeah, to yeah. break the pelvis. Yep. So I was trying to dislocate the pelvis and I was, it was dark and I didn't have a headlight. So I was stamping on it with my foot. Yeah. I was covered in blood. Yeah. I mean, I had blood 
solid blood all the way up my arms, blood on my face from just stuff splashing. And I drug that thing back, put it in the trunk with legs sticking out, mm-hmm. drive towards town. And there was a little, uh, little store called the blue basket. And I remember going to pay for gas <laughs> and this kid's there with his dad. He's like, dad, dad, like, look at, look at, look at that guy. And here's this, you know, guy with like blood all yeah. over him. And his dad's just like, shut up, kid. Shut up. He's like, but dad, <laughs> it's blood. It's blood. You know? And uh, yeah, so that's kind of, that's kind of how it started. So I just, everywhere I went, I would go and adventure. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I was that kid. I wanted to see what was on the next ridge. And that's the difference, right? Because you, it's too easy. If, you, if you're just driving around in safari land hunting, it's easy. Yeah. But you wanted the challenge, and yeah. so there's part of the uh, allure in the journey is you know when it's things are difficult, you're getting something out of it. Like you feel like you earned it. You know that's I mean? right. That's yeah. right. And everything, of course, and it wasn't like this new thing of of oh you know we eat it. It's like no, dude, we ate it. Yeah. Like it, yeah. it wasn't like because it was cool. It was because that's what we ate. Yeah, we couldn't afford. Yeah, that's what you had. And you know, and it's just the way it was. And we had powdered milk, man. We couldn't afford fucking regular milk. So yeah. we had milk that you mix with water. And then if kids were over, they hadn't seen it yet, explain that the milk was in a pitcher. Yeah. Because it wasn't out of a cow. It's because it was mixed with water. Yeah. And, uh, you know, no name brand cereals, yep. you know, all that kind of stuff. It wasn't that, oh, man, there wasn't anything to eat directly out of the refrigerator that was in a peel pack. Yeah. It was like, no, there wasn't anything in the, in the cupboards either sometimes. Yeah. And, and you just, and you just did that. Yeah. Um, you know, and that kind of led into, and, and I, I just, I just have some disdain today with you hear about trophy hunting. Yeah. You know, trophy hunting's bad. Yeah. But unfortunately, and, and you, you guys, you know, you do enough, you guys deal with enough of stuff that as you get older, things are just complicated. Yeah. You, you just can't say trophy hunting. Yeah. 100%. And just let it stand. Yep. You just can't say that. Yeah, it's complex. And it's complex. And I'll give you I'll give you another story. You know, here's my definition of trophy hunting. Mm-hmm. So you go out. Well, you do this and you do this and you become a better shot. Mm-hmm. You become a better woodsman. Mm-hmm. You become stronger, yeah. fitter. So then it just doesn't seem right to walk over the first hill and shoot a doe in the head. Mm -hmm. That's just not, you're going to eat it all the same, but that really just, there's really not much fulfilling about that. Yeah. So as you get better, you're like, all right, I'm going to go for a bigger one Mm -hmm. and a bigger one. And the bigger they get, and this is a study I wrote a long time ago, but somewhere, somewhere said that, that as I remember that once a mule deer hits, a buck hits four years of age, Mm -hmm. 85% 85% of them die of old age. Yeah. Yeah. Once they become smart, mm-hmm. they just don't get killed. Yeah. You know, it's either a, they're learning they're yeah. either a mountain lion or, you know, and, and they stated how some of them wouldn't even come out for the rut. Yeah. Like if they didn't feel up to it or Jeanette, whatever, they, they didn't even come out of their, you know, their hidey holes in the mountains, even, yeah. even to rut. And, you know, they call them the gray ghost. So to get them, you got to look, you got to yeah. journey. Yeah. You journey. And and that's what trophy hunting became for me mm-hmm. was just matching my skills because I had to hike longer, hike mm-hmm. further, put more time in, more commitment. Mm-hmm. 
And that's what it became. So, yes, the antlers got bigger. Mm-hmm. They all got eaten. Yep. Had nothing to do with the eating thing. It was like, they're going to get eaten regardless. Mm-hmm. But it was just that thing. And I don't see how that's any different with anything else in life. Mm-hmm. As you become more proficient and better at something, mm-hmm. you want to take it further. Yeah. Push the limits. Simple as that. Hey guys, it's time for an intermission break. Ah, this podcast is sponsored now. Hey, this podcast is sponsored by Duke Cannon. Hey, can a bar of soap be patriotic? Yes, it can. That's a lot to ask. It's just a bar of soap, right? It doesn't get out a little flag and wave it around. But consider this. Duke Cannon's superior quality grooming goods for hardworking men are tested by soldiers, not boy bands. I think George used to be in a boy band before he joined the military. They partner with Active Duty Military to develop new ideas and review products in the hygiene realm. Anything that doesn't meet the high standards of soldiers doesn't happen. Most importantly, Duke Cannon is committed to giving back to the men and women serving our country. God bless you. That's why a portion of the proceeds directly supports veteran causes, which is an important issue or important uh, fact for us at Philcraft Survival. So when you're using Duke Cannon's big-ass brick of soap, or premium hair goods that give you news anchor thick hair. Have you seen George's hair lately? Raul's hair is on point. That's because of Duke Cannons. Our premium, they have premium hair goods that give you news anchor thick hair or beard shaving goods that help you put your best face forward. Don't be surprised if you start humming the national anthem. So hey guys, yeah, definitely visit DukeCannon.com right now and get 15% off your first order with a promo code using Fieldcraft, one word. Philcraft, one word, free shipping on orders over $35 as well, which is a twofer. I don't know if you knew that. It's a twofer. All right, guys, back to the podcast. Now you, now you, how, how does this, how does this trans transition into enduro racing? Or is this something that you did growing up? I mean, I, mean, I grew up poor like you in Florida and I couldn't even afford a dirt bike. I mean, I was wrecking buddies bikes did was there a transitional period where you picked up a bike and then you started getting into it and then you you just got consumed with it where you become a subject matter expert or was it how did that start I had I had a I had a stepdad <clears throat> it was pretty much a piece of shit but mm-hmm. the one thing I guess is that uh, he was he loved dirt bikes mm-hmm. and he really didn't ride much I don't know what he liked about him he wasn't I don't remember him ever dirt biking but somebody had a DT 100 Yamaha for sale, Mm -hmm. steel tank, uh, black and red. And I think it was his boss Mm -hmm. and they wanted $300 for it. And if I could come up with 150, I, uh, I got it. I I was able to get it. So I came up with 150 bucks and I had this thing and it had blinkers, a headlight, but again, it was just a hundred. Yeah. And, uh, and I didn't have any riding gear. So somebody gave me a helmet, full face, like <laughs> Steve McQueen. That's awesome. Like, Evil Knievel. Yeah, like, you know, 25 cents at a yard sale type Yeah, deal. yeah. And uh, tennis shoes. And I took that. And, and here's what's crazy is you got to realize at the time, like no mag, I wasn't looking at any magazines. Um, I'm trying to think, you know, where the ideas came from. Uh, I'd ride my bicycle into town again as a kid, unattended, six, seven miles mm-hmm. into town, you know, on the side of the highway, mm-hmm. usually every Saturday. And I would go to the Yamaha shop and just look at them, man. Yeah, yeah. 
for years. Get the little catalog thing so you could just buy shirts. They didn't even give me one of those, dude. <laughs> it was like, I never bought one thing. From, I never had, you know, I really yeah. didn't have any money. And, You're dreaming. And I just dream about them. So, like, I go home and I took off all the blinkers. You know, the headlight. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't replace it with... Uh, you know, like a, uh, you know, like a moto motocross front plate. Yeah. No, I just took the shit off. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't put on other tires. Yeah. There's just no way. All I wanted to do is try to make it look like those bikes. Mm-hmm. And I just started adventuring with it and I'd get stuck in mud holes and, and, uh, I'd push the bike home a couple times, mm-hmm. uh, chased by the sheriff multiple times. I had my escape route back through the trailer park. Mm-hmm. into like a tin shed and uh and that's kind of where it started and i always had always had a love for them so i had a couple bikes you know usually it's just how they would show up a lot of times they were a bike that didn't run and i'd get it running yeah and so and i didn't have anything to transport them in there was racing wasn't an option it was just something i always i always really enjoyed yeah and so i did that a bit and with, uh, once I was finishing up college, I guess that's kind of, that's kind of where it started is I was looking at mountain bikes and I wanted to buy a mountain bike and Cannondale had come out with the first, uh, suspension mm-hmm. and it was just a mono shock in front really. Yeah. And it was like 2,400 bucks. Mm. And it did, I mean, that was like, you know, that was the creme de la creme. Yeah, best the best. And I, and I looked at that and I'm like, shit, I had a job man, that's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Man, I wonder how much, what kind of dirt bike I could get for that. Yeah. So I went to the dirt bike dealership. I said, what can I get for 1500 bucks? They took me out back. And it's funny. It was a desert racing, like a 1986 or 88, uh, white tank, white plastic, red frame KTM. Oh, with a 640 LC4 engine. What? Yeah. Dang. And I'm and, and at that age, you're like, yeah. hey man. It's like a Ferrari. Oh uh, dude, like the bigger the engine, the yeah. better. Which <laughs> which is not true. Not true, yeah. True. I can I can educate you on that. <laughs> and so that thing was just a monster. And yeah. and man, it would stall in the worst places. Like oh. when you really didn't want it to stall, <laughs> that thing would just bleh. And uh, you know, and after your your chest bounced off the handlebars yeah. from the immediate deceleration. Yeah. Usually, when it stalled, you were in some horrible place. Uh-huh. So you're trying to get the thing out. It was gnarly. That's awesome. And uh, man, I just I just rallied that thing all over the place. Well, explain what's the difference for people who don't know. It's the difference between motocross and enduro. Is is it called enduro still? Yeah, enduro is a is a pretty wide term. The enduro racing is typically long longer races where endurance obviously becomes a factor. Yeah. So like if you look at motocross, most of the heats are 15 minutes and the mains are close to 20 minutes. It depends on what bike size, et cetera. Yeah. But you know, they're small circle, small laps. Yeah. They're sprints. Sprints. They're sprints essentially. And enduros. and, And that was kind of my idea with inside enduro. What enduro means to me is more to do with the adventure. Mm hmm and the endurance aspect where you get to the point where if the terrain's hard enough and if it's long enough, Mm -hmm. people run out of steam. You're in the same place as the hunting I'm talking about. You're at the same place towards the end of a rugby game of who has 
the fortitude, who has the metal. Yeah, yeah. And a it's lot like of an equalizer for yeah, the field. Yeah, it is. And that's what I rely on. Mm-hmm. And I have bad thoughts. I mean, I this last weekend, I'm going along thinking I am attrition. Yeah. Yeah, I, oh, yeah. I am attrition. Yep. And every person you pick up, it's like eating a soul. Oh, like, yeah. Like you get a positive charge because you just broke someone else's will. Mm-hmm. And that empowers you to go on to the next. Mm-hmm. So I know it's kind of no, no, morbid. But Well, I saw in the Rough Rider 100 when we were out there, uh, it, you know, it was a... For people who don't know, it was a local race, but it's in the Enduro, was it the AMAR? Or yeah, the yeah, AMRA. AMRA series. And then uh, the interesting thing was it was just a – typically it's not that cold, but it happened to be one of the coldest and wettest days. And it was brutal because some kids were showing up. Some guys were showing up with uh, you know, jerseys with no cold weather gear. They didn't yeah. have a suit, nothing. So – and then the first, right off the gate, dudes were going through water, so they're soaking wet. And this thing was how many miles? Like, not the total lap. Yeah, I think it was like... Nine? Yeah, the, the lap was nine to ten miles. Yeah. And I think I ended up doing close to, I don't know, maybe 70 miles. Yeah. Right? And then half the... I know a lot of the field quit. I mean, there's dudes coming off, and then people were saying, what are you doing? He's like, I'm done. I'm just done. Yeah. I'm just like... And it was interesting, because I was... You know, I could see the competitive nature where you see the field quitting yeah. because they're uncomfortable. Yeah. And so that just feeds the competitive nature yeah. of it all. You know, and to me, not to be it, – it's all a part of reference, right? For me, that, that thing that thing is a trail ride. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, I admit, though, my hands were cold. It was low 30s, close to freezing, some snowflakes at times. Oh, yeah. And I had, I had actually screwed up in the beginning. I made a tactical error. Yeah. And people were very sketched out about the river crossing, uh-huh. how deep it was. Mm-hmm. And I came to it, and obviously, I've crossed some rivers that may take your life, especially in the hunting in Alaska, et cetera, and rivers that rise a foot in a day. Mm-hmm. And they're the, uh, yeah, your uh, error is not an option. Yeah. And I could see the fall line of where it was essentially shallow. Uh-huh. So I saw that and I'm like, oh, this is nothing. Yeah. So actually I went in too fast Mm. and I didn't have any problem with it, but I hit it fast enough that I took water up over the bars, Mm -hmm. soaked my hands and hosed my goggles. So I got, and I had tearaways, but when the water comes from above and in and it gets gets behind, it gets behind the tearaways and it Mm. gets behind the lens, you're hosed. Yeah. And you don't really want to be going at high speed where people are throwing rocks. Oof, uh, yeah. That's just And they were. There's kids getting hit in the head with yeah. rocks. It was pretty brutal. Yeah, yeah, it's a bad idea. So mm-hmm. no matter what, you're trying to keep your goggles on. And so between that of having soaked hands, et cetera, yeah, I was uncomfortable. I was not deterred by any means, but yeah, yeah. I, I knew like, man, A, you know, your hands are freezing, so you're le- you're losing tactile control, mm-hmm. which can be dangerous. Yep. But you know, you're pushing through and then it's not cool riding at high speed with rocks all over and you have walleye vision. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I had the goggles on, but there was like little wavy, you Ooh. know, like 
yeah, the rock you saw was actually six inches to the right. Wow, wow, <laughs> so, that's it, crazy. Yeah, it can cause major problems. What was the fi- what was the uh, how many people started? And how many people finished? We didn't even stick around. It was so damn cold yeah. by, the, by our van. I was just like, let's just go. We're, it's cold. Yeah, so it, it was it was dumb. It, it had it had a big it had a large attrition, a large attrition rate. Yeah, yeah it was it, it was pretty. Rate. It's what I've always been fascinated with, and you know my experience i grew up on um on and around motorcycles and then the military we always used them we usually use 250s and the army actually in special operations command has no motorcycles so we have to borrow them we borrow them from the air force combat controllers or we use them like my team uh exclusively as a mobility uh, recce team used them and we had to uh, get borrowed vehicles but when i i had a whole bunch of single track kind of guys that were doing enduro amateur enduro like club races on the weekends and stuff yeah and i was i was always fan, uh, fascinated by it and uh, i got like a a ktm 450 a, B, a bmw uh, f800 and then it became more popular when 03 and 04 with this long way around with uh, ewan mcgregor mm-hmm. and when they did that uh trip all the way around the northern hemisphere around the world essentially yeah and then they did another version uh, where they went through Africa, but what I what I realized is it really took a lot of technical training leading up to it. You had to be physically fit. You had to plan your routes. You had to do navigation. You had to understand terrain. And so it's not just riding a bike. You know, when you're in motocross, you could maybe get away with that. But if you transition into enduro, it's a completely different set of skills. And you you went into that, I'm assuming, with you know tackling and isolating and becoming the best you you could be in all those different skill sets. What drew you to in, uh, endurance racing or enduro over anything else? Again, it's it's the pushing your body, and and I think as you get as you get older, the mastery of skill mm-hmm. and a lot of things as you look back. For example, with the wrestling. I was always a good wrestler. Mm-hmm. I was never the best wrestler. Mm-hmm. And the reason was, at the time, I just wanted to smash people. Mm-hmm. It was an outlet where I could let everything go, mm-hmm. and there was no legal issues. Yeah. And a lot of times, I didn't really care if I won or lost. I went I went out there to take bark off somebody. Uh-huh. And you know, I think at the time that was good for me. That's what I needed. It was a better outlet mm-hmm. because a lot of my friends went down other routes yeah. and didn't end up so well. Mm-hmm. And, and all of these things that I had learned growing up as running with emotion and versus skill. And that's what is what I've really grabbed a hold of with enduro, which you're talking about, but more importantly, hard enduro, which is this, New thing to the United States over the last few years. And that's it's, the actual name of it. Yeah, it's called Duro. Hard Enduro. Okay. And it is a whole different animal. Mm. It's not really if you're tired, if you if you can go faster or you slow down, it stops people cold. Mm. Just cold. If you don't have the skill set, yeah, you're not just slowing down, you're just not going. So the change for me, and I guess maturing as a human is I'm looking at it through mastery of skill of taking all these different techniques and putting them together and taking 
and I guess the way I explain it in a lot of sports and a lot of things, if you're fired, if you have incredible emotional drive, Mm -hmm. it's, it's a good thing. But what happens when you just, I kind of look at it like this. You have an engine and a fuel tank, right? What if you just pour all the fuel in the top of the carburetor? Mm -hmm. You better stand back Mm -hmm. because it's taking your eyebrows off and it just all blows up. So if you look at, let's say MMA, if you come out and you just come out swinging Mm -hmm. wildly, probably isn't going to end up well, right? Same with boxing and, and really any other sport. So the idea with it is if you can take that emotion and that fire and you have a firewall, between your engine and say your fuel compartment, mm-hmm. but you can still pull from that emotion and drive when you need to, when you need to, Yeah. but you're governing that fuel so that you can concentrate on the mastery of skill mm-hmm. that when you're in a very stressful situation or, you know, for example, and it happens all the time when we were at rev limiter in Texas, they had this, it was only about a two foot, a two and a half foot, maybe three foot vertical cliff you had to jump on, mm-hmm. except you're on a ledge and your handlebars touching the ledge in and of itself with the right technique, it's not that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. But if you go eight inches to the right, you're going to fall 20 feet mm-hmm. straight down. It's a, it's a free fall. Yeah. So all of a sudden, you know, that mental focus oh, yeah. uh, being focused and not looking at the bad things that could happen, et cetera, being able to control that fear. And I guess that's where it comes from. To me, that's that love of you have to solve this problem and in a very, very stressful situation, really be able to meter your response, your mastery of skill, your focus. But yeah, you can still derive that emotional drive and and you need that as fuel. Yeah. But you need to be able to govern it. Mm-hmm. And that makes, that's that's lethal. Yeah. Well, it sounds like a beautiful thing. I mean, it just sounds like a, like an orchestra of a whole bunch of skill sets that if, if you don't have all the skills and bring them together, it's just going to sound like shit and it's just not going to work out. It's just amazing how that. Yeah, how that, I had someone explain. They said it was something like a toolbox. The guy with the biggest toolbox wins. Mm-hmm. The guy that has the most tools. Mm-hmm. And, and that's somewhat true because... If you put yourself in a situation where you've been in all these crazy, you know, like the bike's rear wheel is on one boulder and the front wheel is on another boulder and you have a big V gap Mm -hmm. and, you know, how the hell do you get out of it? And if you figured that out and if you put yourself in all these crazy situations and you, and you learn how to get out and you learn, you learn how to orchestrate the maneuver the more things you have when you when you get into an open environment, you're able to conquer that mm-hmm. with not just conquer it, but even conquer it with efficiency. Yeah, yeah. And that's you know where where it really matters. Yeah, it's not just brunt force. You have to be super yeah. optimized to be able to to be at the top. Well, yeah. And then in the beginning, I was you're essentially you thought the bike was a throttle and brakes. Mm-hmm. You know, you're a throttle jockey just giving it to it. And honestly, anymore, I, I look to the dirt bike as more like playing a guitar. Yeah. I'm operating all five controls simultaneously in harmony. 
and you can do some amazing shit. Oh yeah. When you start doing that. Yeah. What well, you you have a you have a whole bunch of uh, understanding of the bike. What I'm curious because I know a lot of people are wondering what what bike do you use and what is your setup and then talk us through like a train up because I know you mentioned before like you had a 50 hour train up. I, I assume leading up in preparation, you you do a lot of prep work all the way from physical fitness to the technical aspects, um, even tracking the routes and navigation. We talked about that before. So let's talk about your bike and then the setup that you do prior. Yeah, basically with the hard enduro, the mainstay is the two-stroke, mm-hmm. typically a 250 or a 300cc two-stroke. Mm-hmm. Obviously, KTM owns the market pretty much for the 300 two-stroke mm-hmm. Uh then you also have Beta and Sherco, some of the overseas companies that that do pretty well. Mm. It's max three hundred. Is that there's nobody going over three hundred? Yeah, three hundred. There used to be five hundreds, old CR five hundred, yeah, yeah, KX five hundreds, but they're at three hundred and they're stupid powerful. We're talking mm-hmm. fifty eight horsepower. Okay, it, it's something that weighs. I weighed one of the KTM three hundreds at the shop. On a freight scale, weighed two oh eight. Wow, fifty eight horsepower, and it weighs two oh eight. Yeah, and it's what's great is two hundred eight pounds. I can literally lift it up and walk around with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. but um, so that's what we're using for the harder stuff, and then typically for the faster. And as you've seen with motocross, the four strokes have taken over. Yeah, it's essentially all four strokes, and four strokes just have the way they generate power they produce a lot of traction mm-hmm. and a lot of torque and it's really cool and they're fun to ride. They're yeah. so fun to ride. And in the faster stuff, I prefer them. They're mm-hmm. more stable. They're more linear. Mm-hmm. It's like driving a Cadillac, you know, down the highway with the cruise control on 120 mm-hmm. compared to say the Datsun B210, mm-hmm. like at 80, like your you window, <laughs> your head hanging out the window. Yeah, yeah. You don't know which way it wants to dodge. You know, that mm-hmm. Cadillac, it, it's going straight. Yeah. For sure. You know, you have that weight and momentum and, and just, just the way it puts it down. And yeah, with the training, we do a lot of different training on the trial spikes, which are these bikes that essentially it's like a mountain bike with an engine. Yeah. Uh, Is that for the technical aspects? Yeah. 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 Okay. 145 to 150 pounds. And to operate them, they're very much like a guitar. You mm-hmm. ha- you are operating all five controls at all times. Mm-hmm. So you know, front brake, rear brake, throttle, clutch, shifting, you know, all of that. Yeah. So you're literally, you're doing maneuvers where you're holding everything. Yeah. Where you're holding the rear brake, the front brake, giving it throttle, giving it clutch, all at the same time, Mm -hmm. simultaneously to get a desired result. Mm -hmm. And it's cool. And, you know, for anyone out there looking for different things, the exploration, um, you know, part of me, I still hunt and it'll always be definitely a part of me. But as I kind of went through my, my hunting phase and, and essentially all around the world chasing it, people started to drop off. As you get older, people aren't, people weren't as intense. Mm-hmm. And I found myself just doing it by myself. And it started out by myself as a kid, but part of the enjoyment of, of doing these extra, you know, extraordinary things is, is sharing it with other people Yeah, yeah. that appreciate it. Yep. And man, that pool of people for me, just died. Mm-hmm. Everyone had kids and, and just, 
didn't didn't really have the desire desire for it and and I and I kept it up by myself for many years mm-hmm. and what the dirt biking gave to me was a set of adventure mm-hmm. where you could literally I mean if you think of you go on a mountain bike ride and you know a big ride's probably 20 miles a single track yeah 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 you know, that's a pretty decent ride or 30 miles well you can go out and put 100 miles a single track on a day yeah. through the mountains 100 miles a single track you see a lot of shit. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. I've run into multiple grizzly bears and elk and you're in these unbelievable places, the tops of mountains, mm-hmm. you know, through Idaho, Montana, and it's just amazing. Yeah. And for some reason, you know, most of the people I run around with are a lot younger than me, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, there's, there's more people in that pool that want to go and do that. Yeah. So you're able to experience those activities. And again, you know, I love it enough that I'll, I'll ride by myself too. Not a problem, mm-hmm. but it's, it's, it's even funner, you know, when you have good dudes, yeah, oh, you yeah. know, to share it with. Yeah. You, and you, we had talked about this before with the, uh, the age gap where, uh, you know, you're running in a field where you're the oldest guy in the field and it seems like a young man's sport, but I, you know, I always find it interesting cause I, I would think that because of the requirement of learning the, te- having the technical experience of doing the right thing and then learning the wrong thing along the way would attract more guys in the field. And I know, you you know, you started inside Enduro, um, actually talk to us about inside Enduro and then, you know, what, what's your motivation behind that? Is it to educate? I'm assuming it's to educate obviously, because not not a lot of people in the field are doing a lot of education. You know, I haven't seen a lot of that. In fact, you're the first person after besides the forums that's had, you know, information media, to, to be able to disseminate information. Yeah. It was really born of the idea of, I wanted to share. Yeah. I wanted to share what it was. It's to me, one of the most interesting, exciting. I mean, I've, I have a lot of choices to a lot of things. I mean, I'm just like everybody else, right. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's a four wheeler, a boat, a side by side skiing, water skiing, hunting, I mean, just name off every hobby mm-hmm. that, people in the u.s do which we're always crazy in the u.s because usually everything involves a helmet yeah 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 everything yeah (laughs) so if you can get smashed doing it easily solved put on a helmet yeah you know and and do it faster yeah and uh you know so you have all these activities and and man i'm a fairly cynical picky person Mm -hmm. and i enjoy it just everything because of the physicality learning how to use the bike that's where the education comes in. There's no doubt as you become better and more proficient on a bike. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, it's fun. Yeah. Like you're not struggling up. You're, you're looking at features, waterfalls, boulders, like, ah, uh, that can I just get around it? Like, no, I think I'm going to jump from that boulder and I'm going to land on that boulder and nice. I'm going to do this. Yeah. And all of a sudden things change, man. Yeah. You know, you're, you're basically using the landscape as your canvas. Yeah. So, what I wanted to do is I wanted to highlight the riding scene on the enduro side. And that's what it's come down to mostly. Like you'll see Supercross on TV and and I've got heaps of respect for those guys. Those guys train hard and they put in the work and and they get they get paid for it. And that's essentially where all the money is. Yeah. Basically because you're able to fill up stadiums mm-hmm. and you have television viewership. Where the off-road scene, that's actually where everyone is, yeah. the enduro scene. That's where 98%, 99% of the people are. 
Yeah. And that's where the, that's the people buying bikes Mm -hmm. are out riding trails, doing this, doing that. And like you alluded to, there is so little education, so little education. Mm -hmm. And there's some, there's some guys taking up the charge and, and that's something where I'm trying to facilitate as well. Yeah. And because training's huge and I've done it myself. I'll give you an example on the trials bike. So I had this trials bike. I'd bought one before and you kind of know, Hey, if you ride this funky looking contraption, you're supposed to get better. Mm-hmm. Well, you go out and you ride it. Yeah. I don't know. You start doing some different stuff, but nothing amazing happens. Mm-hmm. So then I sold that bike. No big deal. So finally I got another one. Mm-hmm. I'm like, all right, I'm gonna try this again. Got it. Doing the same thing. Like, this is stupid. Mm-hmm. All right. This has been going on in Europe for like a hundred years. Mm-hmm. That's essentially where all the dirt biking and motorbiking originated from. Yeah. So you're thinking, all right, they've had all these world championships forever. There obviously has to be a general rule book yeah. of the physics, of technique, of what you're supposed to do on one of these. Mm-hmm. So I got online and looked across the U.S. and searched your websites for hours. I found one place. Wow. One place in the United States. Trials Training Center in Sequatchie, Tennessee. Wow. Where the hell is Sequatchie? <laughs> Dude, I've been there twice, and I don't even know. <laughs> I, 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 used, I used my uh, Garmin navigation, so I honestly, about an hour and a half out of Nashville somewhere. Yeah. Towards Chattanooga, uh-huh. I think. That's crazy. And it's literally in with the hill people. Yeah. And uh, Some dude just teaching how to do trial bike technical riding, huh? Some, some guy that had some interest bought a 60-acre uh, or 600-acre I wouldn't call it a farm because it's all rock. Yeah. You know, basically oak and rock. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he's had it for a while. And there's a guy out there named Charlie Roberts. This guy's in his sixties. He's got a bit of a pot belly on him, mm-hmm. but man, he can still get around pretty good on a trials bike. Mm-hmm. And so they have four to five bikes to rent. So I rented a bike, flew in and it wasn't bad. It was something, I don't know, maybe with the bike, 200 bucks a day. Oh, that's nothing. Yeah. You know, for like an eight hour day. Yeah. And I tell you, we hadn't even left the shop. We hadn't even gotten on the bikes yet. And the first 10 minutes was like, this is worth it already. Yeah. Because I knew I'd made the right decision. Yeah. That, I mean, the way he was talking about it, mm-hmm. that, yeah, this is a whole nother sport mm-hmm. that has a rhyme, a reason, and a technique to it. Yeah. And so really, Part of that inside enduro has given me that thirst, A, to share the adventure and help other people adventure. Mm-hmm. Highlights a little bit on the racing as well because, I mean, that's somewhat pertinent. Yeah. You know, on the enduro side because these are the guys, you know, hitting the the apex of what's possible on a bike. Mm-hmm. I think that's important. Um, helping people know and understand what the bikes are about. More importantly, maybe what they don't need. Yeah. More importantly than what they do need, because mm-hmm. there's just a ton of shit out there yeah. that you can strap on your bike that you think it's going to make you a better rider. Mm-hmm. Where in most cases, if you forget all that crap and spend a quarter of that budget on getting some education, mm-hmm. oh, the fun, the return on investment for fun yeah. and understanding is exponential.
Hey guys, we're going to take a little intermission break for the podcast sponsors. Yeah, we're a big deal now. We get sponsored. That's a, that's a goals right there. We're next level now. Hey, I don't know if you heard it last time, but me and Raul were talking about it. What's interesting is uh, Raul turned me on to this product actually before we got sponsored, and I've been a big fan ever since. It's called Blinkist. You know, everybody has goals to hit, whether it's eating healthier, exercising, sometimes can be hard to partition in busy lives. And so when you're looking at uh, studying, you want the cliff notes. You don't want to read and digest an entire book. We don't have a lot of time. Blink is the only app that takes the best key takeaways, the need to know stuff from thousands and thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes. And everybody has 15 minutes. Uh, so on your commute, you could read or listen and Blinkist is made of busy people like you who want to get the main points of the books quickly without reading the entire book. With audio features, Blinkist makes it easy to just finish uh, four books a day. I mean, that's a big deal. Four books a day. That's a lot of uh, consolidation and a lot of time saving. Eight million people are using Blinkist right now, and it has a massive and growing library from self-help, business, health, and history. If you guys are interested in saving, make sure you guys go to B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash survival to start your free seven-day seven day trial. Again, that's Blinkist.com slash survival to start your seven-day free trial. Awesome, guys. Back to the podcast. Well, what's the, what's the start point? Like, say if... Say if you're somebody who has no experience, aren't really on bikes at all, and you want to get into it. Is there, you know, is there a, a list of things that you recommend? I mean, as far as equipment or like just or equipment just... And, and general training, because I would think, you know, bikes are everywhere. You can get the bikes, but you know, I, what I see a lot of people do is they'll get a bike and then they'll spend. And this was me at one point, like my KTM 1190. I spent like five grand on investing it in Touratech stuff. When I should have spent the five grand on touring and riding and putting miles on the bike to get the experience, dude, you hit the nail on the head, man. Yeah. Dude, hey, you're just like everybody else. Yeah, I was the same way. It was like, listen, what shit can I strap on this that will make me a good rider? <laughs> yeah, or, or or make it funner. Yeah, yeah. Well, then you need to buy the fuel to make it's your virtually rider. nothing. Yeah. And and I kind of get in some. It's kind of again interesting is. Again, I think with the age thing, being a bit older and, and making all my mistakes in prior sports, et cetera, is, is I look through it through a totally different lens. Yeah. A totally different lens. So you look at a guy that goes out to go riding. Mm -hmm. So you go riding with some buddies. Well, dude, this is the same everywhere. So what every guy wants when you go out with your buddies and whether you traveled in the same truck or van or whatever, you all show up to ride, right? Well, secretly inside everyone's mind, you're a guy. You don't want to be last. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be that guy. Competitive nature. Yeah. I mean, that. it's like, it's not like you want to win anything. It's just, you don't want to be the guy dragging ass. Yeah. You know, the guy who like, they're picking up your bike, they're doing this, they're doing that, you know, and you're just like, it sucks. So essentially some of the older guys are telling me like, oh man, you know, you just need seat time. And, and I got to tell you, like, as you know, I'm, I'm racing pro hard enduro. Mm -hmm. I mean, the last race I lined up bar to bar in the main event, 25 guys, the best dudes in the world, best dudes, best dudes, in the United States. And some of the best guys in the world 
and I'm bar to bar with Cody Webb, mm-hmm. you know, going head to head. And out of that start, I was fourth overall through the Red Bull Arch. Nice. Ended up 10th in the main mm-hmm. and I'm 48 years old. Nice. I mean, all those guys, everyone else there is young enough to be a kid of mine. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so I, man, I look and I started doing this four years ago. Yeah. That gives me a lot of hope for the racing future. four years, like, yeah. dude. <laughs> I but, can't wait, but I'm obsessed. I put, yeah. I put time into oh, it. Oh yeah. You have to, right? So, so the guys are telling me, oh, you just need seat time. You'll get better. Yeah. I agree to some point. That's not exactly the right story. Yeah. Because if you do seat time and just go out and ride and you reinforce poor habits. Yep. Yep. Then you never go anywhere. Yeah. You'll, you'll progress quickly. And that's kind of one of the fun things about dirt bike riding. You will, if you, if you go and you put in the quote unquote, what they say, seat time, you will progress quickly and it'll be fun. Mm-hmm. But if you do some training with somebody that knows what the hell they're doing, yeah, it'll be like rocket fuel. Mm-hmm. It'll be exponential. And for me, that was my biggest drive in racing. Um, I did a race. It was a ISDE, which usually stands for the, I think international six days enduro mm-hmm. huge world scene. Um, it's been over a hundred years and they have it in a different country every year. And to give you an idea, you look at the U S like, Oh man, we have such awesome racers and culture in, you know, the racing and off-road in over a hundred years. You know how many times the U.S. has won the ISDE? How many? Once. Oh, wow. It was like two, three years ago. Yeah. First time ever. Wow. So there's a whole world. Yeah. Like this is like the world. Yeah. And they get down, man. Yep. And they have a rich culture. And with that culture comes that that education. And that's a little bit what's missing. If, If you don't have somebody to help you along to develop those habits and develop the right technique. It's quite, it's quite difficult, you know, it's quite difficult to get to that level. Yeah. And so from seeing that for myself, I was like, all right, I I went and did this race and I got my ass kicked Mm -hmm. and it was, I wasn't mad because I got my ass kicked by other people. What I was mad is, is that I guess the way I could explain it, say your riding level on an average day is a six. Yeah. You know, you're six out of 10, like your average, average it out. And you go to race and you put in a performance of a three, mm-hmm. like literally 50% of what you're capable, not, not what you wish you could do. Yeah. You're like 50% of like how you ride. Yeah. That happens mm-hmm. a lot to most people. Yeah. And that happened to me. And I'm, and I was so disgusted with myself. I'm like, how come I couldn't ride just how I ride, mm-hmm. but because of the stress, yeah, because of mental blocks and yeah, just yeah. Staying, yeah, because of everything that was going on, I literally, I put in a three and I was infuriated and, and, and then the game was on. Yeah. I'm yeah. like, listen, it had nothing to do with anybody else. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm going to figure this out for myself. So I literally went on this all encompassed journey mm-hmm. of looking for knowledge, mm-hmm. seeking knowledge out and applying, dude, I take notes. I write notes. Mm-hmm. I learn techniques. I refine techniques. And the crazy thing is, is even at, at this level, I'm like, yeah, man, I'm 
I'm 48. Yeah. And, and I've been, you know, it gives me a reason to keep my, my physicality on point. Mm -hmm. And there's very few people who can keep up with me on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just the way, the way it is. Yeah. Now I'm trying to catch up on the, on the bike skills Mm -hmm. and the racing part. And the way I look at it, it's weird. It's like, wow, man, I'm, you know, here I'm at this point, but I don't even see an end yet unless I just age incredibly quick. Yeah. You know, like, you know, two weeks, I'm like, oh, I can't do it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. But I have a whole list of, of endless of, of shit I need to work on. Yeah. You know, it's not just kind of like some sports and I'd been there where, you wrestled to a point and, and because I was not doing the right things, mm-hmm. I, I just didn't see the progression. Yeah. Like I'm at this point, there was no clear view of where I was going next. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. You know, even rugby, you know, I got to a certain point, obviously training in Australia with the best guys in the world mm-hmm. got me to a next level, but I really didn't have a clear idea how to go further. Mm-hmm. It was just, you want run harder, hit harder. Mm-hmm. Pretty vague, right? But there's so many things that there's you have to so master. Many, yeah, yeah. But I didn't have the mindset. Yeah, yeah. Dude, I, I was literally just blinders on, mm. and for some reason, man, I don't know what, but the blinders came off. Yeah. And now I'm in this kind of. I start. I talk about bike judoka. Yeah, you're in the and, zone. In the zone of mm-hmm. of how to articulate it and and how to break it down mm-hmm. and how to make it work. Yeah. Because there's no doubt in this last race. Man, I beat heaps of people that are way more talented than I am. Yeah, yeah. But when it comes to putting it down, yeah, when it needs to be put down, mm-hmm. I'm there. Well, what is it? What, is there a? So is the end state to be on the top at the top of your game, which could be endless, right? I mean, because there's always something to learn, obviously, and something to gain, and you you're in this mode now where it's kind of like a natural flow. It's becoming an extension of yourself, and so you're thinking clear and your capacity is freed up to make other decisions become better is the goal to get at the top because you want to be competing with the best in the world i mean you already are but i mean you know is it the goal to win and then do you think you'll be satisfied with that or is the goal to just sustain and and keep it going (laughs) well man if i'm looking at the past one one easy answer just right off the top of my head is i'm never satisfied yeah never satisfied with anything yeah and it's a little more complicated as far as the winning. That's changed too. Uh, the guys that are world class, the guys like Cody Webb, mm-hmm. they're they're on beyond another level. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing rational that I can I can make myself believe that I'm going to be at that level. Yeah, I I miss that train. Yeah, and even if I'd have done it, obviously I think if I'd done this from a younger age, mm-hmm. you know who knows. But still. Even with that, these mm-hmm. guys, these guys are that good. Yeah, but you're like you're bar to bar with these dudes. Yeah, but I mean, he he killed us. Yeah, you know, yeah. he 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 killed us. We well, said you told me that uh, a few minutes it would be the expectation for somebody who's uh, smoking you at a few, a few minutes. So there's there's a there's gaps there's minute gaps in between riders and their capability, right? Yeah, I mean, at this in the in the rev limiter. Cody was lapping the entire field up to third place. Wow. And it was a short lap. It was like a mile and a half lap. Yeah. And yeah. There's issues with bottlenecks, but it doesn't take anyway. He's, he's, he's awesome. Yeah. But so that's what kind of makes it hard is because like if I compete in my age class, mm-hmm. 
You're dominating the eight. It's the class, pretty yeah. much a domination. Yeah. So that's just like rolling up and shooting that doe. Yeah. Yeah. Really, yeah. it just doesn't have a lot of interest. <laughs> and then, so then your next place to go is pro. Yeah. And you know, and I officially went, you know, started racing pro class this year. Yeah. And you know, the the big first national, and I'm already qualified for the national events. I qualified last year because I finished in the top twenty pros in the country. Yeah. For that. And, uh, you know, do I think I can win? That's what's hard is like, I train so hard. Well, I hate to say this. No, I, I will tell you, Mike, I am not going to win. Yeah. I can assure you that. Yeah. But so that's the only kind of thing that makes me somewhat vacillate. But then another change has happened mm-hmm. that has made my racing and performance even better is I've learned that, dude, I'm not racing against these guys. Mm-hmm. They're irrelevant because you could pull out a name, any name. I'll make one up, Sam Smith. Mm -hmm. Well, if you weren't trying to beat Sam Smith, there would be Dan Smith. Yeah. There's always somebody. There's just another person. Yeah. So in this type of fight, when you're dealing with emotional control, Mm -hmm. control of technique, control of skills, who are you fighting against? Just yourself. Just yourself. Yeah. And that's what it is right now. Mm. And my racing's just taken to a whole new level. Yeah. Because I'm racing against myself. Yeah. I'm I'm controlling my emotion, controlling my heart rate. Mm-hmm. And you can see it like when shit goes bad, young guys, man, they're just like, oh, they're losing the race. Yeah. And they just adrenaline dump mm-hmm. and, and they lose their shit. I mean temper, everything's anger, gone off. Emotions, yeah. And then they get through it and dude, they're spent. I mean, they literally just blew their wad. Yeah. Just but it's gone. Yeah. It's like, dude. There's another four hours left, wow. <laughs> you know, and you're like, seriously, you are compromised. Yeah. And I, I feel myself now I, I get in those situations, the worst situations and I almost go cold blooded. Yeah. I'm just, it's almost, it's a methodical, mm-hmm. I know we're in the, we're in the pole, yeah. you know, and that's, what's going to get you through is, is being efficient, mm-hmm. being calm and, you know, not, I mean, being strong. It sounds like therapy a little bit. It, it sounds like a therapeutic it, it, it uh, version of it. And, and a lot of people have talked about it that, you know, when you're at, when you're going at, at that speed or that level, there's no time to think about other shit. Yeah. Like you're not wondering like yeah, if you paid yeah. your utility bill. Yeah. You're just not. I always look for things like that. Yeah. Just, and I, that's why I enjoy riding so much because it's an opportunity for, it's like hygiene, you know, it's like, finally rid myself of all the plaque mentally because I'm able to just check out, you know, stay focused on the road, on other drivers, and even even just a 30-minute ride. It's a good yeah. experience of, of that. Yeah. I, you know, I've ridden the adventure bikes too, and, and, you know, I guess the way I could explain it, that's just like a starter drug. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because there's enough time to wander <laughs> I've actually that's fallen. Awesome. I've actually started to fall asleep. I've fallen asleep. Yeah. On <laughs> that's when bike. you know. I used to fall asleep on my Harleys because they had cruise control and highway pegs. And I'm like, if I'm falling asleep on a bike, you know it's time it's to time. get, yeah, it's to time, get off it's on, time something to move on to something else. And I and when you're on that when you're on that dirt bike and and you're rallying, man. Oh yeah. And you're watching every friggin' rock and every ledge at speed. And I mean, you're zipping like, like half half an inch here, half an inch there. Dude, there is no time to even think about. And I and I've had it happen where my mind starts to wander. Yeah. And you're just like, whoa, dude. Like you yeah, mentally yeah. you mentally yep. like talk to yourself like snap back. Like, dude, this is gonna add this is gonna end bad. 
Yep. Like focus now. Stay in it. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, that's a big checkout, you know, because you're able to take that and, and a lot of time I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about technique now Mm -hmm. and, and instituting that technique. So I'd like to think that, you know, you've built enough of those neuro pathways by doing correct training and, Mm -hmm. and, and believe me, that's a lot of it Yeah, is, uh, that does happen. Mm -hmm. You would hope, but still you'll find yourself kind of bowing out on the basic techniques yeah and you really have to keep yourself in line well and that i just think about the evolution and we had just mentioned we had talked about it before the podcast but is there a place for the evolution to be reciprocating back into to actual training to actually run you know inside enduro a a school or something like that because i i mean this there's like you said there's a gap there there's nobody really doing it and doing it well and, you know, I remember being a team sergeant and sending my guys to to school, and it was like a motocross school. Mm-hmm. But it's like these guys aren't going downrange to run a lap on dirt. They're going to use their bike for an offset on a terrorist objective, and they have to maneuver through jagged, rugged terrain. Um, or just, the you know, the, the people who want to get into it as a sport or as a hobby, um, there's nobody really doing it. Yeah. You know, there, there is some, you're lucky in Arizona, uh, Destry Abbott is a infamous desert racer and he has D eight and, and they're, they're enduro cross and, and, and do off-road training. And, and actually I'm doing a podcast with him tomorrow. Oh, awesome. And so looking to highlight it and I have not been in one of his classes, but he seems to be the most frequent Mm -hmm. as far as running classes, uh, pretty much on a, on a really solid schedule. Yeah. And, and obviously, you know, him and his, his son Cooper are, are the, you know, they're two entities that, that are quality. Yeah. Yeah. And you're talking about in a country of 300 million. Yeah. Uh, some of the top, some of the top racers of the international scene, particularly Paul Bolton is a friend of mine mm-hmm. from the UK. He's doing a lot more classes and you're seeing Mario Roman and some of these other kind of these flagship guys, let's just say the best 10 guys in the world Yeah. that before an event, they're doing like a day course, uh, at least doing basically an introduction. Yeah. And, and it's definitely a start and, and that's, that's kind of cool. And I think the formality I would like to actually, I would like to do one of Destry's classes. Yeah. He does some three day classes. I would just like to see how it, how it breaks down. Yeah. And I'm sure they're good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, you know, I'd like to see it, you know, first, firsthand yeah. to see how it reinforces what it trains, mm-hmm. et cetera. And yeah, I, I think there's a huge space and that's something we've been trying to facilitate this training, yeah. promote this training. That's why I'm having him on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And yes, I, I would like to do something with inside Enduro. I, I look at my knowledge I'll, I'll do some rides. I actually, I did one here up in Prescott, uh, or mayor actually, uh, a week ago or so. Yeah. And I got invited on this ride. And, and when I go, when I get invited on a, say a recreational ride, yeah, yeah. a lot of times we call it a charity ride Yeah, because you don't know who you're going with Yeah, and the expertise. Are you chomping at the bit? You're just like, what's happening right now? You, you have to mentally prepare yourself. <laughs> Let's just put it that yeah. way. Yeah. 
prepare yourself to be disappointed. Can you even do a wreck ride now? Like, could you just drive around and leisurely enjoy? Because I remember you, you, you said you got a KTM eleven ninety. I haven't had that same bike, but as compared to a three hundred enduro bike that you usually race, it's like you can't even. It's not even the same feel. No, no. it, it almost drives you mad. It seems. Well, to give you an idea, I went and got. I'll come back to that, but going off the eleven ninety, I bought some of these giant loop uh, soft panniers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I did a trip with some friends, basically circumnavigated the Lee Metcalf Wilderness, 1,500 miles. Oh, wow. And we climbed to most of the fire lookouts. Yeah. And it was it was a killer trip. I think we averaged about 300 miles a day. Oh, wow. And there's a section that's one of the coolest, I think it's on all the adventure bike uh routes it's called the magruder corridor mm-hmm. and it goes from elk city or elk city idaho to uh, somewhere out of like, hamilton montana mm-hmm. and it goes over the nez pierce pass as it drops into montana mm-hmm. and that's literally i think from elk city it's like 120 miles of jeep trail yeah along the bitterroot mountains across it's amazing wow i mean just awe-inspiring yeah and i've got full gear on and i'm jumping these they're kind of these real light kelly humps yeah yeah. so you can hit them and i mean you're only maybe three feet off the air you know up in the air but you're going like 30 feet yeah yeah and i ended up ripping out my panniers because i was jumping it so much and just the impact of oh yeah and when i'd land the the h-bar stand would kabam, you yeah. know, because it's on springs. So oh. the thing would go down and then it would come back up and smack the frame. And, <laughs> and I get to the point where, yikes, it's, you get used to it and you start, you know, you're sliding corners yeah. and then you're pushing it and jumping, you know, have no problem jumping in 1190. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, doing that kind of doing that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> yeah. But no, that it's definitely, it's a big focus of mine. Um, that's part of what I want to give back is getting people interested, you know, for people, again, wanting to check out yeah, and, and get something that truly, truly does kind of get back to that, whatever you want to call it, that takes over your mind entirely. Yeah, yeah. And, and brings a calmness and a satisfaction. Yeah, getting in that flow state. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, I when I started... You know, I'm just, just I, I was disappointed when I started getting into adventure bikes that there's not a lot of schools like we have the Overland Expo coming up uh, May 16, 17, and 18, um, which I love the Overland Expo and they have a dirt uh, enduro you know adventure bike section and they have training and stuff. But if you didn't go to like those kind of events, those kind of uh, technical workshops. You just wouldn't even know how to ride. Like, got some guys who pick up adventure bikes come off of Harleys, like I did, and you don't know even how to do. You know, you don't even know how to control that bike. I mean, you got like, there's not a lot of basic information yeah. for how to uh, get into it. And I think that's what needs to happen. There's there's not as many, like, Destry Abbott School <clears throat> definitely seems like the way they seem organized is that it's almost a formal setting. Yeah. And that's what you need. And there's guys like I went and did a, a Jimmy Lewis class once Yeah, and he puts them on and you know, his schedule is somewhat erratic cause he's doing other things mm-hmm. and you know, it's just kind of hit or miss. Yeah. And you know, a class like that, good or bad. I remember I did it on a 300 mm-hmm. enduro bike and there was a guy there on an 1190 mm-hmm. and he's kind of like, well, all of this 
goes the same direction. You know, you need yeah. this for whatever bike. And overall, I think it depends where you're at in your riding. Yeah. You know, for a beginner, it was fine. Yeah. You know, for me now, obviously not fine. Yeah. But, um, but overall good, no doubt. I mean, at the time it was, it was, it was the right thing for me, but you know, like you're looking on an adventure bike and I, I got to say, I learned this from Jimmy. It's when I, when I come in on the 1190, I don't come in and stop like a Harley. Yeah. I dismount while I'm still riding. Yeah. Yeah. And I mount riding. Yeah. I like you, t- you throttle, you're throttling on as yeah. you're getting on. Yeah. yeah. I start. So I, I got, yeah. I got a foot on the peg. And I'm throwing the leg over as I'm driving down the road. Mm. As I'm coming into a parking spot, I'm off the bike, riding the bike. Mm. So then there's none of this stop, yeah. put down the kickstand, try to swing your leg over your gear uh, yeah. and all your shit. All these tall bikes. Yeah, yeah, and they're tall. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just like those little things. And, and being comfortable to control a bike like that. Yeah. Is, is a big deal. Well, 600-pound bikes. I mean, it's yeah. like, yeah, you have to be yeah, – like what I was – I can't remember what school it was. It was uh, through BSR, but it was like, you know, just giving a little bit of throttle and understand that you have to stay engaged. Like the drivetrain has to stay engaged for you to get that tracking and trusting that you could turn the bike, you know, sideways as long as it's still, is, is it, it's engaged. So it's not going to fall over on you. Yeah. But those kind of like, you know, the little cone drills and stuff, like people don't understand that. They don't understand the physics of the yeah. things that are going to happen at the basic level. And you can just go get your, uh, uh, you know, safety card, and then get your motorcycle endorsement, and then just be a shit show on a bike. Yeah, you know? it's crazy. Dan- dangerous, and and obviously, they call them donor cycles for a reason. Oh yeah, the ones on the you know ones on the pavement. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, and that was another business that I had was we dealt with being in orthopedics for so long. Mm-hmm. We deal with a lot of human tissue graphs yeah. for ACLs, etc. Mm-hmm. And when we order these. A lot of them come out of MTF, uh, muscular uh, tissue foundation. Mm-hmm. And if you're shopping for one, so say, hey, you know, so-and-so, Mike's however old you are, blew his ACL, wants to go with a cadaver ACL. Mm-hmm. Well, they have a list. And it's like, okay, what do we got here? Oh, here's one. Oh, it has this measurement. It's 10 millimeters or 9 millimeters by whatever um, – 64 year old guy, blah, 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 blah. You'd probably go, nah, yeah. let's look down here. Oh, oh, 19 years old, mm. male, 12 inches, you know, and it says, you know, death, you know, it's listed what the death oh, was, wow. motorcycle death. Wow. And that's crazy. Donor man. cycle. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and believe me, we go through those lists all the time. Like, Hey, what do you got? Yeah. And like, well, we got this and this, like, ah, we don't want those. Damn. Like, oh, you know, 19-year-old kid, 20-year-old kid. Yeah, we want that. Yeah. yeah. You know, because we want to give the patient the best graph possible. Yeah. Very unfortunate, but it's the way it works. Yeah, I've lost a lot of uh, buddies on bikes, and I've seen a lot of guys killed on bikes. And it is, there's, you know, obviously there's accidents that happen with people, but it seems like there's not a lot of education in, in bikes, period. But even on the road, just yeah. road driving. Well, you know, and the thing too, and I'm most likely looking at, I am going to sell my 1190. Mm-hmm. I've, I've owned a Harley as well. Mm-hmm. That didn't last very long. Yeah. And I would consider myself a very good rider. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's what you, that's, what's weird when you see in the bikes, there's the biggest gap of knowledge. Yeah. Like you'll have like that level of pros and then just the most massive, it's unbelievable. It's yeah. not like a, 
stratosphere of, of different levels. Yeah. There's the biggest gap you've ever seen. Yeah. It's crazy. It's like you have people up to this level and then there's just a wasteland wow. to the next level. And, you know, with all the writing experience I've had, I am scared shitless to go out and ride on pavement. Yeah. I've never liked it. Yeah. I still don't like it. Being around cars. Yeah. And, Cause you're yeah. watching everybody Yeah, and, and you're watching my man, are they coming? And, and even if they've stopped, I don't trust them. Yeah. So then you're looking at that and you're just basically, it's like being schizophrenic. I'm yeah. paranoid all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I just don't really have a comfort with it. It's like with a dirt bike. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm going way faster typically yeah. and I'm looking for natural things, natural disasters, but I don't think there's for the most part that something is going to inadvertently just take me out Yeah. besides, you know, like a deer or a bear or something like that. And I've had some of those experiences, but man, I'd take my chances against a grizzly bear, you know, then a, you know, then a Volvo. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's just, yeah. a, you know, on pavement Yeah. and yeah, man, the pavement scene, and especially with the texting, man, you see it all the time. Uh, that's what scares the people shit out swerve of me. at like, you, and you uh, and you look at their eyes, and yeah. you know where they are. They're right in their lap, uh, and you're just like, you fucker. That just makes me nervous, man. You're right. The distracted driving has just changed the game for on pavement. I I used to get palpitations getting on my Jixer uh, 1000. I had a 05. And I'm like, why am I driving this bike if it's stressing me this much out? That's how I feel. And survival. Like, it's, it's like, why do that? And so that's why I started getting more into enduro and uh, or adventure bikes because it's, you're right, when you're off trail and you don't have to worry about the dangers of distracted driving, it's a completely different experience. Yeah. You know, living in Scottsdale, there's a big, big road biking bicycle yeah. community. Yeah, yeah. And they're cruising all over on those things. Yeah. Honestly. <laughs> You guys are out of your fucking mind. I know, man. Yeah, I see out, it up here in Prescott, too. Out of your mind. There's no bike lanes here, and they're doing it. Yeah, out of your mind. Uh, l- tell me about all the stuff that you got going on. Like, how does how do people uh, get in contact with you? How do they check your stuff out? Because you have Inside Enduro, and you're doing a podcast even tomorrow. You're on iTunes and SoundCloud? or Yeah, we're on uh, iTunes. We're on, we have an Inside Enduro channel mm-hmm. on YouTube, Podbean, Spotify, Twitcher. Yeah. Uh, basically all the platforms. Awesome. And on Instagram post a lot of all our content is original content. Basically a lot of in nature doing wild, wild things with the bikes. And that is, uh, inside underscore enduro on Instagram. And I think we're going to start doing some of the Instagram TV. We're going to start putting more, we put our podcasts up on YouTube as well because they're all videoed. Yeah. Um, so you can go through YouTube or obviously if you're just, working on your bike or cruising down the highway, mm-hmm. you know, the iTunes or Spotify, Podbean, that kind of stuff. Awesome. Works, works well for that, but, uh, check it out. I think we're going to be doing a lot more videos on YouTube of kind of longer riding segments. Yeah. And, and like you said, we're going to definitely looking at, I think that's the next stage of, of putting together more of the enduro training and yeah. whether if that's training to de- or traveling to different areas mm-hmm. to do it, but It'll definitely be a more of a well-oiled, uh, formalized mm-hmm. type of program. Yeah, it'd be cool. It'd be cool, it'd be cool to even see you because uh, you could articulate it well. Just seeing you do the videos and stuff on YouTube and everything else, because there's again, there's there's so many gaps of especially when it comes to enduro riding, like riding on technical terrain, yeah. and that could be good for the everyday rider who's riding to work 
and commuting to the adventure to the enduro guy. You know, it's all relevant. It's all bike control. Yeah. And again, when you get stressed, whether it's a car in front of you, a dog in front of you, yep. uneven terrain, it's all the same bike skills. Awesome. The, the five controls, five controls are the same. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and I think I'll look at the format. It was interesting because I, I think I have a unique perspective to take it from basically point A to point B because I've learned all of this by putting it together myself Yeah, and have, have got to this level. So I know, I know how to explain it. Yeah. I know. And I, originally I looked at a lot of YouTube videos mm-hmm. of all sorts of stuff, people doing stuff on YouTube. And finally, honestly, I'd have shut it off. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't use YouTube for any of that anymore. Yeah. And the reason is, and I don't know if you've seen it for other things, for some reason, YouTube is great, but a lot of times it's half the story. Oh yeah. yeah and it's yeah. telling you something and you're, you're going and you're doing it and you're just like, God, it's not working. Yeah. And it's because, because of those things I've investigated further mm-hmm. and I learned, whoa, yeah. That was only half of the it's story. It's shorthand everything, right? Exactly. It's shorthand everything. I hate so that, so man. it's like, you know, until you really investigate it, yeah. and then that's that's how I started to pick it up. Because yeah. as I took these concepts that I did find on YouTube and I tried them and I failed miserably. Yeah. And then I figured it out. I'm like, well, that's why. They're highlighting the click. Yeah. It's a clickbait. Yeah, you missed. You missed yeah. two thirds or, or you know, some of the most important things. Yeah. And then you wonder why you're failing. I, I like the long form of things. I, I'd rather just talk about the things and, and communicate, especially things that are important, like, you know, technically riding a motorcycle. That's important. So you want to yeah. know the details, ins and outs, but they do the four minute and 10 second version of it. And then you're like, okay, let's try this out. And Oh, no doubt. And that, the guy, the one thing, important thing that I learned from uh, Charlie Roberts out the trials training center, he told me this. I thought, I thought it was, a, it was funny. He goes, it's not practice unless someone's watching. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's so true because you can watch a YouTube clip, yeah, and you go do it and think you're doing it. And go, man, I'm doing it just like that, but it's not working. Yeah, it's like if you actually looked at a video or had someone who knew yeah. what they were looking for watching yeah. you, they go, dude, you're not doing that at all. Yeah, hundred percent, all the time. You think you're doing it, but yeah, you're, yeah, you're yeah, not really yeah. doing it. You're not, you're not doing it. That's crazy. And uh, you know, so that's always that's always been kind of an interesting thing. And and when I was up here last at Prescott. There was a guy, he just couldn't get started on a trail because mm-hmm. it was loose and it was steep and he was out of gas, you know, out of physical gas. Yeah. And I took him through basically how to get restarted on a steep, loose trail. Yeah. And there's a very literal, very, very, very specific technique of a few things. And boom, like 100%. That's from awesome. From zero to hero. That's awesome. You know, in like two minutes. I'd say I'd, I'd, I'd love to watch that kind of content, man. That's just, that's the technical stuff I've been looking for, but you can't find it. It's Cause it's, to. it's all a highlight reel. And I'm like, I don't want the highlight reel. I want, cause I, I know they can do it. Yeah. I want it to be explained technically how to do it. It's like those old, old videos. Well, I saw them old. It's probably 10, 20 years <laughs> when they used to explain shit. Now it's just a clickbait thing. It's crazy, man. Well, Hey man, it's been an hour and 40 minutes, uh, along our podcast, but again, we're doing the long form version uh, I appreciate you coming out here and uh, spending some time with us. No, thank you. And and then also, man, really, really, I got to look at your operation today. Yeah, it's really cool to see all the directions you're going. Oh, thanks with man. Fieldcraft. Yeah, and uh, I just want to give you guys a big shout for serving our country. Oh, I appreciate think it, that's man. an amazing thing. Thank and, you. Uh, you know, I think we need to continue to do do better at providing support. Yeah, and uh, just really appreciate the time you've put in. Oh, I appreciate it's it. Important. Man. Thanks, James. 
Well, hey guys, thanks for tuning in to the uh, podcast. All the notes for all the things that uh, we talked about today will be in there, the links to uh, James's stuff. And uh, uh, make sure you guys check out IGTV because we're going to do a little walk around on his uh, Sprinter van. If you guys got any questions, you guys could always email us at info at com. Thanks, guys. Oh, <laughs>